This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, I'm Mark Riley, And I'm Rob Hughes. And you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. So, where are we going this time, Bob? B is for Berlin. Okie dokie. So, uh, the effects of living in L.A. had ravaged David Bowie, lots of cocaine abuse and personal problems. Plus, he'd become fascinated with music coming from Europe, particularly Germany. And we know all about the Krautrock. I know some people don't like the term Krautrock, but most people use it. But we're talking about Kraftwerk and Noi. We know he was obsessed with Noi, don't we? Yeah. Uh, Egg de Froze as well. He was really big on of Tangerine Dream. Mm. And, uh, yeah, he just felt that he needed a change in his life, didn't he? That's what he thought. And also, I mean, he also joked about moving to Berlin uh, to get away from drugs. Yes. But he said he went to the drug capital of Europe, yeah. which was a little bit kind of uh, perplexing, but it, it evidently worked for him. So he yeah. said to one of the newspapers, he said, in uh, 1996, I was in a serious decline emotionally and socially. I think it was very much on course to be just another rock casualty. I'm quite certain I wouldn't have survived the 70s if I carried on doing what I was doing, but I was lucky enough to know that somewhere within me that I really was killing myself, and I had to do something drastic to pull myself out of that. I had to stop, which I did. So he goes to the uh, European capital of decadence, Berlin. Well, first of all, actually, he goes to Switzerland in 76. He goes from L.A. to Switzerland. He gets himself a chalet in the hills uh, near Lausanne, which is near uh, Lake Geneva. And then, you know, still using cocaine, but certainly his cocaine use is decreasing. He takes up painting. He also learns to ski, I believe. One of his neighbours is Charlie Chaplin. You know, it's the outdoor life for him. All of a sudden, things are changing. But, of course, he's still interested in 76, very much in the German music scene, and he feels like he needs to be there. So he moves to West Berlin to clean up, revitalise his career maybe, and he would just get around town riding a bike, it was the anonymity that he craved, takes an apartment 155 Hauptstrasse, where he lives from 76 to 78 in Schoenberg, and also of course he's regularly haunting uh, Hansa Studios near the Berlin Wall. That's right, and I mean, uh, he, he does go, uh, he, he goes to Berlin with Iggy Pop, but yeah. you've, got, you've got to bear in mind also that he'd come through the previous album, like we're looking at Station to Station, where famously he said that he couldn't remember any of the recording whatsoever. Mm. I mean, at one point in time, you never know whether David Bowie was joking or not, because he had a lot of mischief in him, yeah. but he said that all he could really remember was being under the mixing desk and telling Earl Slick to play like Chuck Berry at the end of the song Station to Station. So he was completely ravaged by cocaine, and I think everybody else around him was shocked by it, and you would see pictures of David Bowie or on Cracked Actor where he was skeletal. Mm. And so something needed to be done, but moving to Berlin with Iggy Pop, on the surface, would not seem like a good idea. But he did, he ended up sharing an apartment with Iggy Pop, and he began to focus on minimalist, ambient music for the first three albums, low. Yeah. So they, they talk about the Berlin trilogy, but he's here with Iggy Pop, and he's such a creative period for Bowie. Mm. And a lot of people do reckon that Lodger isn't actually the third part of the Berlin trilogy. They reckon it is Iggy Pop's The Idiot, yeah. Yeah. which is arguable. So such a, a, an amazing period of time for David Bowie. So you've got The Idiot and Lust for Life both in the same year and touring with Iggy Pop as well. As his keyboard player, of as course. As his keyboard player, which I saw at the Manchester Apollo. And so it was a really 
really important part of his life. Yeah, and so, you know, and he is rejuvenated. So uh, Iggy and Bowie sort of live fairly modestly in Berlin. This is amazing when we get to this. You know, they'd go and eat when they were a little bit flush, which wasn't very often. They'd go eat, eat at a place called the Paris Bar, which is kind of an upscale there, Charlotte and Berg, and where Iggy at one point got so drunk he ended up rolling round in the ice outside. Love that tale. Now, in 2001, they had another writer called Stephen Dalton, a great writer, uh, writing for Uncut. I'd not been writing for Uncut magazine for a long time. I don't think they trusted me very much. I'd just done my first feature. Suddenly they asked, I'd like to do the cover story on Bowie, specifically the Berlin period, which obviously I jumped at, yep. but they clearly didn't trust me. Absolutely, as a judgment proved right. So Stephen Dalton was kind of there as a kind of chaperone. So right. he did a lot of the stuff. And luckily we were able to interview Bowie just by email. I never met Bowie, but you know we interviewed him by email, sent him a load of questions along with Tony Visconti as well. And he just poured this stuff back at us. It was so great. We will get to that in a little bit. But you know, he was talking about the Berlin period and the kind of stuff that he and Iggy would get up to. And it was just precious. And the thing that really is astounding, I find, is that Bowie, when he was living in Berlin, he was broke. Yeah. He had no money. And so if you think of like young Americans had already come and gone and fame and mm -hmm. having hits in America, he seemed like, a, to us, like, you know, one of the biggest stars in the world. But he was skin. I mean, again, we will look into this at different parts of the uh, podcast, but mm. the management details of yeah. contracts and things yeah. which left him in a precarious position financially. Uh, but the thought of him having to be frugal whilst living in an apartment with Iggy Pop in Berlin, uh, it, it does blow your mind. It's bizarre. So one of the things he told us, he said, it was one of the few cities, Berlin, where I could move around in virtual anonymity. I was going broke, it was cheap to live, and for some reason, uh, Berliners just didn't care. Well, not about an English rock star anyway. So that was the beauty of it. He had this freedom all of a sudden, uh, and he wasn't sort of, uh, you know, burdened by stardom and the rest yeah. of it. Tony Visconti told us that he just loved living in Berlin, did Bowie, because it was sort of represented this sort of fantastic fantasy-like environment where he could just be himself, take his time doing things for a start, hang out with Iggy and the rest of it. And at the same time, there's all these sort of reminders of what Germany had been, you know, so it was very much a city in transition, wasn't it, in the mid-70s? Yeah, yeah. You know, he's still got the Berlin Wall, east and west there. So artistically, it was a very fertile place. It's funny because I do remember years later, I remember an interview with Lou Reed where he was saying that he doesn't like it in London and um, various other places. He does love it in New York, living there, naturally. Yeah. Uh, but he said that people would see me in the street who didn't know him but were like fans or whatever and they'd just go, hi Lou, whereas people would badger you and chase you and want your autograph and all that kind of stuff. And uh, inevitably, we know that David Bowie went to live in New York yeah. as well for much of the same reason, I presume, you know? Yeah. So from the same uncut interview, 2001, Bowie said, I had not intended to leave Berlin. I just drifted away. Maybe I was getting better. It was an irreplaceable, unmissable experience and probably the happiest time in my life up to that point. So Coco, Schwab, Jim, Iggy and I had so many great times, but I just can't express the feeling of freedom I felt there. Some days the three of us would jump in the car and drive like crazy through East Germany and head down to the Black Forest, stopping off at any small village that caught our eye. At night we'd hang with the intellectuals and beats at the Exile restaurant in Kreuzberg. In the back they had this smoky room with a billiard table and it was sort of like another living room, except the company was always changing. I love this, probably my favourite bit here. So he says, sometimes we'd go shopping at Cardevay, which was a giant department store right in the middle of West Berlin with these huge food counters with you know, sort of lots of displays and he said uh, that are only imaginable in a country where he either must have been seriously deprived of food at one time or where the populace just plain likes to eat. We'd stock up occasionally in what felt like luxuries at the time, chocolates or a small tin of caviar. One day, while we were out, Jim, Iggy, uh, had come in and eaten everything in the fridge and we spent all morning shopping for, this is him and Coco, it's one of the few times that Co and I were truly mad at him. I could write a lot more on this, but... The other thing I remember about this interview 
interview was. I'd have been set up. We were both of us were so thrilled to do it in the first place. But it took an age for Bowie to get back to us. We'd had the answers back from Tony Visconti, which is great, and a few other people. But obviously, Bowie is the main thing. It wouldn't have worked without Bowie. Right. And the deadline for the magazine was fast approaching and no sign. I think he'd promised us uh, to send them over by the weekend. They still hadn't arrived by Sunday night. Monday morning happens and the magazine has to go to press. So you just think this isn't going to happen, you know. And then we were living in the old house at the time and a guy came to fix our rotten old boiler and for whatever reason his phone went off and it was the man who sold the world ringtone and I just knew at that point that was a sign it was going to be alright and then he started talking about Ava Cherry who was Bowie's backing singer and we got talking about Bowie just something completely unprompted and he just got into that and I took that as a sign and it was kind of about two hours later that all these questions came through all these answers from Bowie and it was just amazing for them to suddenly start tumbling through the email Wow The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. B is for The Buzz the Buzz formed February 1966. Uh, they split by December 66. It didn't last very long at all. David Bowie out front. Uh, Derek Boys on keyboards. Derek Fernley on bass. John Eager on drums for a while. John Hutchinson on lead guitar. And also uh, Billy Gray, who was on lead guitar for a bit too. Absolutely. So the previous band, The Lower Third, they split on the 29th of January 1966. And this was due to the bandmates going tired of the attention that David Bowie was getting. But he's a lead singer. Well, you're entitled to that, aren't you, surely? What do they expect? Mm. And uh, yeah, Can't Help Thinking About Me was already recorded. A great song, but now he had no musicians to help promote it. So uh, they held some auditions and they put the band together. Yeah, so the big break comes on the 4th of March that year when Bowie plays on Ready Steady Go, Miming Can't Help Thinking About Me. Three days later, they record a new single, Do Anything You Say, like its predecessor, produced by Tony Hatch, who was an interesting character. The first time I ever became aware of Tony Hatch when he was a panellist on an old uh, ITV show called New Faces. He didn't have a good word to say about anybody, but of course he'd done the theme for Crossroads at that point. And Downtown by Petula mm. Clark, which is an amazing song. But yeah, he played a big part in David Bowie's career, obviously. And uh, yeah, interestingly, it was credited to David Bowie. It wasn't a band as such, so it was uh, a singer... With a backing band. Absolutely. So, uh, manager Rolf Horton sort of ran out of money. Not for the first time this happened, and mm. he wasn't the most reliable early manager of Bowie's. And so then this is when he approaches, who was already, a, a, you know, a sort of bit of a showbiz mogul, Kenneth Pitt, who'd looked after Bob Dylan when he first came over. He PR'd Frank Sinatra in late he 50s, did. so he had great pedigree, and he wanted to take Bowie on, you know, onto his books. Yeah, and so uh, Kenneth Pitt went to see Bowie um, on several of the Sunday afternoon shows at the Marquee, and he was impressed enough to take him on, you know, and it, it so Ken pit, uh, good on him, he paid off all of Horton's debts, yeah. and so Horton then just was quite happy to become assistant manager and gig fixer. Absolutely so June 66, Tony Hatch comes in frustrated at the buzz's failure in the studios, brought in some session musicians uh, Hutch got a bit miffed he was replaced by a guy called Billy Haggis Gray. Now would he be from Scotland by any chance? You're right Mark, oh. Kilmarnock in fact God to be precise. Now Billy Haggis Gray uh, described himself as a little raver. I wonder what other people described him. <laughs> That's more interesting thing. Another interesting episode occurred in Ramsgate. Now, this is a weird one. A live show uh, was the intention to use a backing tape instead of the band. Now, it, you could say it's questionable. Of course, these days, you've got laptops running all over the yeah. show, particularly for the big bands. Uh, but in those days, I mean, it's all pretty kind of Neanderthal, isn't it? And yeah. so, uh, guess what? It didn't work. No, but, you know, he's looking to the future already. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, uh, Ken Pitt was looking to sign a deal 
with uh, Diram, wasn't mm. he? OK, so at this point, though, Bowie was heading towards his, well, what should we call it, narrative Tony Newley phase, OK? Uh, and his audience weren't having any of it. Not a surprise, really, because that is a fairly niche audience, isn't it? Yeah, well, you've already built an audience, not a huge audience, mm. but people, when they go and see David Bowie, think they know what they're going to get. But, yeah, so the next batch of songs that appeared on the debut album, mm. uh, you know, having done demos for it, I mean, Uncle Arthur and Little Bombardier, they were not mod stompers, were they? And he's moving on again. So, like, throughout his career, as we know, Bowie would move on from one mm. thing to the other. But at this point in time, he was just getting frustrated. He, well, yeah. he wasn't particularly getting bored with things. He's just like, this isn't happening. Mm. I need to try something completely different. So the Tony Newley Cockney thing just hit him with a vengeance at this point, yeah, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And the day before those sessions on the debut album, uh, Bowie and the Buzz played the marquee again. And in his diary, the drummer, uh, John Eager, described it as pathetic. <laughs> I oh. love that, absolutely. 25th of November... Uh, a sad day for the buzz. Ralph Orton gets in touch with the band and tells them there is no buzz. There's no money. There's no future. Uh, though some of the guys do appear on the debut album, don't they? Alongside the session player. This is another interesting one. So but he was Big Jim Sullivan. And if he wasn't Big Jim Sullivan, it was Jimmy Page. Absolutely. The two go-to guitarists in the 60s, Page and Sullivan. And he worked with them both. Yes. The A to Z of David Bowie. With Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. B is for Bowie, OK? Jim Bowie. Jim Bowie. Well, yes, James Jim Bowie, actually. Born the 10th of March, 1796, Logan County, Kentucky, in the USA. Died the 6th of March, 1836, aged 39. So uh, this guy was an American pioneer and he played a prominent role in the Texas Revolution, which culminated in his death at the Battle of the Alamo. So this is a history lesson that probably nobody wants. Sorry, uh, he spent most of his life in Louisiana working as a land speculator. Mm. So he became a Mexican citizen in 1830. Uh, after a series of altercations and duels, he became something of a legend. And it was basically for his fearlessness and his handling of what became known as a very famous Bowie knife, which was nine and a quarter inches long, one and a half inches wide. Now that's a sizable knife. It most certainly is. And uh, so, yeah, he was just, he was handy. Right, OK, he knew how to use this knife. His most famous incident, apparently, was a sandbar fight. Now, this is a, this is a weird old tale. Mm. It's probably in a film which we will mention later. Uh, but it was supposed to be a one-on-one duel between two guys. He wasn't one of them. But, of course, these two people don't really trust each other. No. And so they bring a gang along with them as well, OK? And so there's a, they're on a sandbar in the middle of the Mississippi River. Wow. And that's where the duel's taking place. So it's all fantastically dramatic. But it just turned into a really violent gun and knife fight which you could probably see coming. So you'd expect two guys to take one shot at each other, yeah. or however many yeah. shots, and that'd be the end of it. But no, it all absolutely kicked off. And Jim Bowie, he did survive the brawl with a serious injury, but two men did die in it. Yeah, he was a tough nut. So and on another occasion, for the squeamish, Bowie used the knife to disembowel a guy who was trying to kill him. Yeah, OK. Right. So, uh, yeah, as we know, he was a bit of a kind of legendary figure and he was seen to be cool by some people, but he also, history tells us, traded slaves, so yeah. he wasn't cool. All right, and so he lost his life at the Battle of the Alamo, uh, reportedly not fighting alongside Davy Crockett, though, but in his sickbed, where he emptied his gun chambers before being shot at by attacking Mexicans. Yeah, and there was a film, The Alamo, 1960, in which uh, John Wayne played Davy Crockett mm. and uh, Richard Widmark played Jim Bowie and Lawrence Harvey was in there as well. As far as uh, history once again tells us that it was a Bowie knife that David Bowie took his name from. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. B 
these also for Jeff Beck. Of course. Now, one of Mick Ronson's real guitar heroes, uh, when Ronson was in a band called The Rats, they supported the Jeff Beck group at the uh, Cat Baloo Club in Grantham in Lincolnshire in uh, the summer of 1968. Ronson supposedly met him backstage afterwards. Beck taught him how to play Jeff's Boogie. And it's probably no coincidence that Bowie has even referred to Ronson as my Jeff at one point in time, so you can see where the trail is going from. I remember hearing the news coming through from Radio Luxembourg that Davy Bowie had done his last concert ever. Right. That, that was it. Mm. And I was distraught. It was like, oh, this you, you, you're having me on. I hadn't seen him at this point in time. Jeff Beck joined for the encore, did the Gene Genie, and they did the Beatles' Love Me Do, uh, with Bowie singing and playing harmonica. But uh, it wasn't seen. This was another perplexing thing. Yeah. So he never actually made it to the famous D.A. Pennybacker Ziggy's Last Stand film. Well, this is the thing. Lots of different conjecture here. Uh, you know, various people said he wasn't happy with the sound quality, sort of being a bit of a perfectionist and the rest of it. But going back now, um, well, two or three years ago, I was talking to Jeff Beck about something differently, and I had to mention the Ziggy gig in 73. Were you reticent about asking him? A little bit, because I don't know whether he was going to bite my head off. But he didn't in the end. Uh, And he sort of, you know, did it with a smile on his face. And I don't think it's the episode that haunts him particularly. But this was his version anyway, why he wouldn't be shown on the film. He said, it was the shoes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it was nothing to do with the sound whatsoever. He starts laughing at this point. He said, the camera went onto my filthy white platform shoes as I was pressing a wah-wah pedal. And I thought, Dave, I'm not having this. <laughs> I didn't even know that they were filming it. Okay? That's the thing, isn't it? <laughs> my manager went berserk because he didn't know they were filming it either. And so it was a surprise. I know I was there, you know, as, as a gift from uh, for David to Mick Ronson for a start, or from his missus. But nobody was really talking about filming. He said, when I saw the rush of the shoes, he said, oh no, these are the worst effing shoes I've ever worn but we said Jeff I'm with you I wouldn't let anything go that I wouldn't like the style of whether it's a fashion faux pas or whatever please in the future can we do it with that bit cut out later on he said he got a call not long later from Bowie saying you may as well let this whole thing go he said because everybody's watching your shoes right now on 42nd Street in New York where Bowie's on tour all the porno theatres are playing the bootleg of the gig so he says I finally let, let that thing go that is the real story and that is his tale that is amazing isn't it and then of course he is famously seen later on that evening at the Café Royal, isn't he? Which is mm. the, the party. He often, like, talked about but yeah, Mick Jagger was there with Bianca and the McCartneys, Ringo Starr was there, Lou Reed, Barbara Streisand, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, more of whom later, uh, Lulu, all manner of people, weren't mm. they? That's okay. right. And uh, yeah, Bowie had seen Jeff Beck with the Tridents, hadn't he, in uh, 1964 with his mate George Underwood? Yeah, so the Tridents being Beck's band before he joined the Yardbirds. And I believe that one of Bowie's really earliest uh, compositions called Silver Treetop School for Boys was sort of partly indebted to Hi-Ho Silver Lining by Jeff Beck. Right. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
The A to Z of David Bowie, with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. B is also for black tie, white noise. Yeah, Bowie's 18th studio album, released 5th of April 1993, recorded in Montreux, LA and New York. A very large cast list on here, but uh, most noteworthy, we say Bowie, of course. Nile Rodgers, back on production, Sterling Campbell on drums. I'll be sure, a uh, vocal duet on the uh, title track. Reeves Gabrell's back in the frame, Mike Garson, Lester Bowie, legendary trumpet player, and certainly last but not least, Mick Ronson, a special guest. I know, that's set the old jungle drums going, I tell you. But uh, yeah, so his return to uh, solo status for Bowie, he'd been in Tim Machine with uh, Reeve for a certain while, and he described it as an attempt to make a new kind of melodic form of house, mm. and he'd uh, recently married Iman, okay, and that was reflected in the song The Wedding, and in fact the whole album itself really was heart and parts of that whole scenario. But uh, Bowie and Iman arrived uh, post-wedding in LA on the day that the Rodney King verdict mm. was announced, so I mean, people will remember that, we don't need to patronise yeah, people. Yeah. But the ensuing riots broke out and uh, it inspired the title track of the album. Yeah, so this is a backdrop to the whole thing. So Bowie described the whole turmoil later as the most apocalyptic thing I've been through in my life. And many people kind of heard this, didn't they, and think, right, it's Bowie back on form. And always people would trot out the same comparisons. Best album since Scary Monsters. And that just became like a default thing, didn't it? Yeah. But it certainly was. Bowie sort of re sort of re-engaged with his muse, certainly back on form. Yeah, well, I mean, the Tim Machine thing, again, we'll get to that later on. But I mean, oh, you know, he just wanted to be in a band but really everybody wanted to speak to David Bowie and mm. so even when you see the Tim Machine interviews it'd all be focusing on Bowie and he would try and deflect it a little bit to you know the other guys in the yeah. band but it, so alright cards on the table I am David Bowie and uh, yeah let's be happy about that so the track list in The Wedding yeah. I've just mentioned uh, You've Been Around written uh, with uh, Tim Machine's Reeve Gabrell and yeah. uh, that was originally for Tim Machine apparently I Feel Free which mm. was uh, the big talk point, you've already mentioned it, Bowie's reunion with Mick Ronson, who was very, very poorly at the time, wasn't he? Yeah. He, and, uh, he, passed, he? he passed away three weeks after the release of the record, uh, but uh, Bowie and Ronson getting back together again. There is footage of the uh, the meeting as well online, isn't there? Yeah, there is. So you've got the title track, of course, as well. Jump, they say, an interesting one, which is one of several Bowie songs, kind of focuses on uh, his half-brother Terry and his schizophrenia, mental illness, and the yeah. rest of it. Night Flights as well, which is a cover of the old uh, Walker Brothers tune, Scott Walker, made a big impression on Bowie early on. Yeah, uh, Palace Athena, a spiritual piece, you could say. Miracle Goodnight, once again, covers mental illness and uh, legal injustice, you know. Uh, Don't Let Me Down and Down. Now, this is a bit of a curio, this one. It's a cover of a song by Taramint Hembara and Martine Valmont, Mm -hmm. and he was actually given to Bowie by Iman on a CD that she'd picked up when she was on holiday, and it's been described as a collision of cultures, and it's also been described as not very good. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. Not by me. No, not by me. No, no. Looking for Lester, of course, an instrumental, presumably kind of referencing uh, the great Lester Bowie and why wouldn't Bowie want the other Bowie on, on his record? Yeah. Who plays trumpet on, of course. Uh, I know it's going to happen someday, which is the fourth cover on the album, which is uh, a Morrissey tune, which was originally on Your Arsenal. We've got to remember as well, famously, Your Arsenal, produced by Mick Ronson. Yeah, and Bowie described it as, it's me singing Morrissey, singing me. Aww. And uh, And the final song is a wedding song. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. B is for, but well, it's a double B, actually, Bob. That's treble. Uh, Bertolt Brecht. Ah, Bertolt Brecht, a German poet, playwright and theatre director, perhaps most famous for the three-penny opera that he did with Kurt Weill, which produced the uh, famous ballad uh, Mac the Knife. Great sense of theatre 
during the uh, years of the Weimar Republic. And Bowie ended up starring as Brecht in the play Baal, which I remember watching at the time on BBC TV in 1982. I didn't have a clue what it was. It was obviously some sort of very deep existential film. And Bowie was essentially you know, made up as a tramp. He was. He didn't suit him either. Not at all. He had very bad teeth, didn't he? he? Did. Well, he made up to look like bad teeth. Just <laughs> oh, Bob. <laughs> Two years before that, of course, he'd uh, sort of showed his Brecht credentials by releasing a cover version of Alabama Song, which, of course, probably most people would know from the Doors version. They would, yeah. And uh, so Bowie's performance of Baal, it was transmitted on the 2nd of March 1982 and RCA issued the EP to coincide with it and it would mark the final release of RCA records for David Bowie. The next release was through EMI, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And I remember going into Woolworths and McGull there to buy that EP and I still have it now. There's Mark. a Blue Heritage plaque saying as mm. much, mate. So the musicians on uh, the Alabama song, uh, Adrian Ballou, guitar, Carlos Alomar, guitar, Simon House, violin, Sean May's piano, Roger Powell, keyboards, George Murray bass and Dennis Davis drums. And Bowie liked the song enough to revive it for the Sound and Vision tour in uh, 1990, which was essentially the big greatest hits tour. And of course, Adrian Ballou was a musical director on that tour. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. B is also for Blackstar. Yeah, David Bowie's final album. And, uh, well, what an exit, you'd have to say. I mean, it's one of the most talked about albums of the last 20 years, isn't it? For everything that went on around it. So Bowie died on the 10th of January 2016, two days after his 69th birthday and the release of Blackstar. So uh, his 25th studio album, the title track, the first single with a short film directed by Joe and Renk, which uh, he also did the uh, Last Panthers, didn't he? Yeah. And that was seemingly like, very unusual at that point in time because Bowie allowed his music to be used on the series. Yeah. So everybody thought, wow, there's something going on here, you know? Yeah, so as we mentioned, so two days after its release, uh, Bowie died of liver cancer. His illness hadn't been revealed to the public until then. Uh, Co-producer Tony Visconti had described the album as Bowie's sort of intended swan song and a parting gift Mm. for his fans, which is just so poignant. Amazingly, it became Bowie's only album to top the Billboard charts in the States. His only number one album in, in the US. It's just, it, the mind boggles, doesn't it? I mean, the, the thing is that a lot of people really very, very close to David Bowie, they knew he was ill. Yeah. They, yeah. Knew, they knew he had an illness, but they didn't know that his death was so imminent. No. That really took them all by surprise. If you look at it, at the 59th annual Grammy Awards, the album won the award for the Best Alternative Music Album. And it was also awarded the British Album of the Year at the Brit Awards 2017, but you have to say too little too late. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he kind of, yeah, from my point of view, I think he'd been taken for granted for quite a while, you know? Um, I think so. Yeah. But, you know, Blackstar was everything that Bowie fans hoped it would be. Next Day, of course, was just a great success, great, mm-hmm. amazing comeback. And this was even better, if anything. And very ironically, given his death, he sounded full of ideas, revitalised. And there's textures in there, there's jazz there. He gets a jazz band to help him out. There's the avant-garde in there. Loads of experimental things going on. And... Has to be said, amazing vocals, great, great vocals. In fact, I was interviewing uh, Richie Sakamoto, who collaborated with Bowie in the 80s on Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, only, or oh, not so long ago, and he was diagnosed with cancer around the same time. Obviously, right. he didn't realise Bowie had cancer, because nobody did at this time, but he remembers hearing Blackstar and was staggered at the quality and strength of those vocals that somebody, a cancer patient, could actually sing like that. 
Right, OK. And, and talking of the influences, I mean, uh, we know that Bowie's a sponge and there's all those stories about him uh, really wanting to work with the prodigy. And so yeah. he always kept his eye on what was going on in the music scene and always wanted to get involved in new things, didn't he? We know that. Uh, but according to producer Tony Visconti, he and Bowie deliberately attempted to avoid rock and roll. That's the phrase that they use, avoid mm. rock and roll, uh, whilst making the album. And they've been listening to Kendrick Lamar, his album To Pimp a Butterfly, which I don't know. I know, it's terrific. Is it? It is so great, right, yeah. Right, OK, I probably should know it then. Uh, but also, uh, Boards of Canada, he was mm-hmm. listening to, and a band called Death Grips as well. Uh, so they were all cited as influences on the album, which, yeah. he, which is, again, just shows you Bowie's mindset. Absolutely. And he was also a big fan of LCD Sound System. We'll get to James Murphy in a bit, so that plays into it too. Anything but rock and roll, really. Yeah. So uh, a bit like the previous album, The Next Day, uh, we've recorded at the Magic Shop and at the uh, Human Worldwide Studios in New York. Started making demos for Black Star as soon as Next Day was over. So he was really on a roll here and just fully engaged again. And he gets, as I mentioned before, this New York jazz combo uh, led by a guy called Donnie uh, McCaslin as the backing band. And they just went with it. It's one of the great things about it, of course, because, you know, the next day he'd use Jerry Leonard, Gail Andorce, all his usual band of players. Yep. And typical of Bowie, he didn't want to use them this time round, just went for, you know, the least expected. You know, a local jazz band that nobody had really heard of. Well, I mean, again, there's all the conspiracy theories, and you know, and there's all stuff about Black Star. I mean, you know, Black Star apparently being a lesion yeah, that can be found yeah. that is associated to cancer, and and so many different conspiracy theories that were thrown around it, and still are. You know, you got Lazarus within there, yeah. And there's even like conspiracy theories now suggesting that David Bowie didn't die. You know, yeah. the, the lunacy of it. But sure. like Lazarus is just a, a little um, inkling from Bowie to everybody to say. Actually, you need to think about this. Uh, yeah. Have I gone? Have I yeah. not gone? Am I somewhere else at this point in time? You know, um, and so, I mean, and again, it was so brilliantly engineered. I mean, everybody says that. And there is a story about David Bowie saying, when I go, I'm going to go in style, you know, uh, which uh, would be completely... Um, in keeping, wouldn't it? Really? In keeping with his life, yeah. Uh, mentioned uh, LCD Sound System. James Murphy plays a bit of percussion of it from LCD Sound System. James Murphy said recently there was talk about him and Bowie making an album together around this time, which would have been really intriguing. Never got round to it. Obviously, Blackstar got in the way, and of course, you know, Bowie's death happens. But, you know, an intriguing thought. That was where Bowie's mind was at. That's where he wanted to be. You know, he'd sort of heard these records and thought, I want to do something along these kind of lines. The songs themselves on the album, uh, we're not going to go into all of them. It mentioned Lazarus, and... and of course, you know, there's a video there as well, in there, which is just so moving, especially in hindsight. Is he kind of giving the signals out here for what's happening to him? He knows, he's aware of his own mortality and the rest of it. It just made everybody stop, didn't he? It once, did. once he'd passed away, I mean, which did come out of the blue, immediately Bowie had gone, people going, oh... What about this? Mm. Uh, have you noticed that? And there's, uh, and again, even in the artwork, there's all manner of conspiracy theories about holding it up to light and seeing different things in it, yeah. uh, which at, at one point in time was being refuted. Mm. Uh, they said, no, no, that's just a load of rubbish. It's just a coincidence. But it actually wasn't. It was more than that, wasn't it? Yeah, it was deliberately designed that way. Just thinking about the lines, I mean, you take it in any other context and the lines in Lazarus are uh, so innocuous sounding. This way or no way, you know I'll be free just like that bluebird now, ain't that just like me? And you just think, okay, but in the context of Bowie's death, you know, it just means everything. They're so kind of deep and resonant, those lines, aren't they? They are. Um, other songs, you've got Black Star, of course, which was accompanied by a, a short film, which is a, a strange one, very much in keeping with Bowie's sort of artistic tendencies, depicting a woman with a tail, discovering a dead astronaut, taking his jewel-encrusted skull to an ancient, very otherworldly town, and his bones float towards an eclipse, while a circle of women perform a ritual with the skull in the town centre. So it doesn't make any sense, just like some surreal art film, but typically Bowie. 
Oh, and before we go, we do need to mention some Bowie literature, don't we, Bob? We do. There's loads of stuff out there, and some, you know, sort of navigating it all can be a minefield, but there are some essential Bowie tomes, aren't there? I've got to say, the first one, certainly, is Kevin Can's book, Any Day Now, The London Years, 1947 to 1974, which is just immense in its detail. It's mind-blowing. He's got access to all the stuff that Bowie was doing between those years, like little notes, photographs he's signed, and you wonder where he gets them all from. But if you wanted a day-to-day breakdown of what Bowie was up to, up till 74. That's the book for you. It's all in there. It's mind-blowing. Mm. It's my favourite David Bowie book, I have to say, by A Country Mile, and there are some amazing ones there, which we will mention now. Uh, I wonder if Kevin can got a lot of the information from Kenneth Pitt, because I know ah. that he knew Kenneth Pitt. Maybe Kenneth Pitt yes. kept a diary. I don't know. Uh, but there's stuff in there before Kenneth Pitt, mm. there's stuff in there afterwards, and it, there's a breakdown of what he was doing at school sometimes, you know. I mean, uh, the little pictures of David Bowie when he was about five years old and stuff, so he got access to early photographs. But all of that, the real diary stuff, as you say, 64 to 74, it'll be about going to tiny little pubs to do gigs, conversations with people about whether they're going to work together, some strange stuff in there that will crop up further yeah. in this series. Uh, but it, just hugely recommended. Yeah. Uh, an incredible piece of work. Yeah, it's an astonishing piece of work. Uh, not far behind, Nicholas Pegg's The Complete David Bowie, which he, he, he updated several times. If you want a kind of thorough examination of Bowie's song-by-song detail, how it happened, what it sounds like, the influences and the rest of it, each album and then a timeline so you know where Bowie is at any point in time from, from up till you know from A to B and it's all in there. It's his songs, his albums live tours all manner of things, yeah. it's just all very well documented there. There's also, we just mentioned Kenneth Pitt, there's uh, the, the Pitt Report mm. which is a, a really great book, again documents those years where Ken Pitt, his manager in the mid 60s it just keeps a tally on really what he was up to with David Bowie at that point in time. Yeah, if you want great pictures you've got Roy Carr and Charles Shaw Murray's David Bowie, an illustrated record which is the first Bowie book I had when I was about 14 just some great imagery in there for a start Yeah, The Life and Times of Ziggy Stardust by David Bowie and Mick Rock, mm. which is essential. Which has got Bowie's text in there, of course. Absolutely. Paul Trinker's Starman is one of the better biographies. Lots of detail in that as well. Uh, other stuff. Angie Bowie did backstage passes. Tony Visconti's autobiography, Bowie, Boland and the Brooklyn Boy, is essential too. Yep. And, of course, there's one by uh, Peter and Lenny Gilman, if you can get hold of it. It's quite hard to get hold of now, but it's called Alias David Bowie. And some very interesting things in that, some great interviews as well, especially the early days. It's funny you should say that because I gave one copy to a charity shop not long ago because I've got two copies, so oops-a-daisy. Mm. And before we go, we really need to mention another three great Bowie books, the first being Woody Woodman's autobiography, Spider from Mars, which is just hilarious and very, very honest and brutal in parts. I absolutely love that book. And a Bowie Bible to some, which is David Buckley's strange fascination. And last but not least, Bowie's cohort from the mid-60s to early 70s, John Hutch Hutchinson. He's got an autobiography called Bowie and Hutch. Yeah, and there's one more as well. There's an Australian guy, huge Bowie fan called Roger Griffin, who did a book called Bowie Golden Years, which used to be up on the web. Again, it's certainly not as thorough as Kevin Can's book, but same kind of thing. If you want to know what Bowie was up to from sort of 74 to 79, it's all in there. The A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley and recorded and edited by Howard Nock. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode... Cracked Actor, Coco Schwab, Leslie Conn, Christopher Lee, Collaborations, Bing Crosby... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.